Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. And not in the day-to-day lives. They were and continue to be a part of it. So part of when I teach African-American music and look at those Appalachians, African musical collections, is just filling in the blanks. Bringing back in, you know what's on Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place, perspective but always Appalachian and don't forget Will tonight's episode is powered by SOAR shaping our Appalachian region if you're a entrepreneur out there especially in eastern Kentucky check them out Appalachian meets world we're back another week it's Will and unfortunately Neil can't make it he's in the islands with Kenny Chesney He'll be there for a while, and this week, I'll just be solo. So we'll keep the intro, we'll keep the outro short, just a little bit of app news for you. There was a recent article that came out in regards to opioid settlement payouts. Before, you couldn't find out the amount each city or county was receiving in regards to the nationwide settlements from companies that made, distributed, or sold opioid painkillers. That would be the likes of Johnson & Johnson and Marisource Bergen and Walmart, to name a few. But now that information has been made public, and you can find out exactly how much each county throughout the nation has received in regards to these settlements. So we'll post that in the show notes. I just found it interesting to see the disparities and the comparisons of what counties got what. Another little bit of app news, Healing Appalachia, the benefit concert that we've talked about before in the past. This year it takes place September 21st through 23rd, but I wanted to mention it because they just announce their lineup. Credible lineup of regional talent that has become national talent. Always head by line by Tyler Childers. Some of the other artists that are taking the stage this year, Humphreys McGee, Charles Wesley Godwin, Marcus King, 49 Winchester, Arlo McKinley, John R. Miller, Drayton Farley, Tim Gooden, who we've had on the show, Kindred Valley, a number of other fantastic artists. It's just a great lineup. So if you're interested in tickets, you better check those out now. Again, it's September 21st through 23rd in Lewisburg, West Virginia. We'll post that in the show notes. One other just interesting article I saw from World Atlas. They have the eight oldest founded towns to visit in the Appalachian Mountains. I'm going to post that, but I'm going to list them. Dahlonega, Georgia, Brevard, North Carolina, Abingdon, Virginia, Romney, West Virginia, Shepherdstown, West Virginia, Rogersville, Tennessee, Jonesboro, Tennessee, and Harrodsburg, Kentucky. Those made the list of some of the oldest and definitely some that you need to visit throughout Appalachia. A little 
cool article talks about each of them. We'll post that in the show notes. They also have a worldatlas.com. Beyond app news, I also wanted to mention this week, we just celebrated Juneteenth on this past Monday, June 19th, which has now become a national holiday. Juneteenth is also known as Freedom Day or Liberation Day and Emancipation Day. Just a little bit of history. It's celebrated on June 19th to mark the day in 1865 when African-American slaves in Galveston, Texas, were among the last to be told they had been freed. A full two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation outlawed slavery in the Confederacy and two months after the Civil War officially ended. So it's a day when we all were recognized to be free, and it's a day of celebrations. But I wanted to mention it, not just for the celebration of Juneteenth, but for one person that really needs and deserves attention on this day. Opal Lee, who is now 96 years old, has become known as really the grandmother of the movement to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. In 2016, she was 89. She's a former teacher and lifelong activist. She walked from her home in Fort Worth, Texas, to the nation's capital in an effort to get Juneteenth named a national holiday. Four years later, this activism helped push Congress to establish a new national holiday for the first time in 40 years. So a lot of people point to her efforts as the push that got Juneteenth recognized as a national holiday. Even to this day, every June 19th, she walks two and a half miles to mark the time between the Emancipation Proclamation and when the news of freedom arrived in Galveston. One of the things that Lee said, I think she said it last year when they were celebrating Juneteenth, she said, make yourself a committee of one to change somebody's mind. If people can be taught to hate, they can be taught to love. I thought that was a good quote and I just wanted to give a shout out to Miss Lee, Miss Opal Lee, on her courageous effort to get Juneteenth recognized as a federal holiday. One of the last things she said in an interview after it was made a federal ho holiday, she said that she hopes that Juneteenth will become a day of national unity. And she quoted as saying, Juneteenth is not a black thing and it's not a Texas thing. People all over, I don't care what nationality, we all bleed red blood. So thank you for her efforts in making it a federal holiday. The other thing I wanted to mention as a national news, it's also Black Music Appreciation Month. I wanted to point that out to, in regards to the guests that we're having on tonight, Dr. Kathy Bullock. A longtime educator at Berea College. She's a scholar, a singer, choral conductor. She specializes in gospel music and African-American music specifically and the connection to Appalachian music. So we wanted to have her on. We're honored to have her on as a guest to talk about her work, her teachings, and these connections that she teaches about. She has workshops about in regards to Appalachian music and Af African-American music and how they're much more similar and they are different. So without further ado, let's just get her on here. Oh, how he loves you and me. 
episode today we are honored to have the special guest dr kathy bullock she's an educator a scholar a singer an accompanist an arranger and choral conductor who specializes in gospel music spirituals and classical works from the african diaspora he's a professor emeritus of music from berea college having spent almost 30 years there as an academic he is currently teaching and performing and conducting workshops and other programs on African-American music throughout the world. He has also recently joined the faculty at the University of Kentucky School of Music as an adjunct professor and is a member of the Speakers Bureau of the Kentucky Humanities Council. I could go on and on about her accolades, but we'll post her bio in the show notes, but we want to thank you, Dr. Bullock, for being on the show. It's really an honor to have you on as guest. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here, Will. Absolutely delighted. Like most Appalachians are big on history, big on tradition. My family, we're big on tradition as well. One of those traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. Usually have this gigantic spread of appetizers before the meal, way bigger than the actual meal. So we want to I wanted to ask you, do you have a, a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? Ooh, an appetizer for a holiday dish. Actually, I love everything. I'm trying to think of <laughs> a particular appetizer. My appetizer would be like um, sweet potato pie. <laughs> taking no, a, that's perfect. Taking a little piece of it before the dinner. So yeah. <laughs> something. And so then here's me <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> I spoke of your time at Berea in the introduction, um, but you're not originally from Appalachia. Can you let our listeners know just where you're from and how maybe your upbringing compared to the Appalachia that you know today or that you spent many years in since coming to Berea? Well, Will, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. I'm a true Washingtonian, like in the city. My father was a Baptist minister there for many years and very active in the whole civil rights movement, active in the community. And so we grew up in a rich, rich community of, it was 70% African American who lived in the city at that time. Uh, lots had migrated from the South uh, and stayed in the, the D.C. area. So um, music was a part of everything. There was connections with all parts of the community. When I um, received the invitation to come to uh, Berea College, I didn't know. I just finished my doctorate and needed a job, and this one looked like exciting. Didn't know anything about the college, I'm <laughs> sad to say. I just knew that this would be a, a good job to start after uh, completing all my uh, work and so I came and brought my husband and my son who was about uh, five or six years old and we moved to Berea. Now from the uh, large city such as Washington DC where people from all over the world come back and forth to this little town in Berea in Kentucky. I'd never been to Kentucky. I knew it was somewhere between the East Coast and the West Coast. I was very ignorant <laughs> of all of the all of what was there. And so it was for me like moving to the moon. I would say that. <laughs> it was just like, 
as a person with a rich uh, community of not only black people, but people from all over to come to um, Berea, where I was one of very few, Appalachian people looked at me like I was from Mars or something. Like it, Outside of the community, the college itself was very welcoming. So it was a really challenging transition. And then, well, after I'd been here and learned more about Berea and about Appalachia, which I did not know, I realized that I had my own connections to Appalachia. I didn't even know. Oh, wow. Turns out, yeah. Turns out my mom, her people are from Warrington, Virginia, which is a northern uh, Virginia community, not that far from Washington, D.C., but it also was the home place of the president of Berea at that time, uh, John Stevenson. He was born in the same town in Warrington, Virginia. My mother's people had relatives that worked for his family, and that was considered Appalachia. And my, grand, my mother's family lived there. We would go there and visit all the time um, when we weren't in the city. Um, and what was fascinating is that when my mother would come visit me in Berea, found out that she and the president had people in common and families and and then mom would start singing all the songs I'd be hearing there. The Coon Creek Girl, she knew all of the music. Mom, how do you know this? She grew up <laughs> listening to and singing all of this music and it turns out that her, her great uncle worked in the coal mines in oh, Pennsylvania. Wow. And his brother died next to him in an accident in the coal mine, so he picked up the family and moved them to Virginia. That's how my mother's people got to Virginia. So there's Appalachian all through my blood, and I did not even know it. That, that's an amazing connection, something you may have never found out about had you not gone to Berea. That's right. I never would have known. And in addition to that, Will, as an African-American, to be in a community rich with people of all persuasions and from the mayor who was black um, to on down to people in process and uh, lawyers and doctors and family members of all sorts. And then to come to Berea where there were so few blacks and there were some parts of the nearby community where I was told I don't go or if I, if I go be back out by sundown. So to move to a community like that was very, very um, challenging, you know, outside of the college itself. I found it, Berea, to be a fascinating, wonderful place. I learned so much. And again, that was challenging too, but it was really life-changing to yeah. work with young people because I don't know, you probably are familiar with Berea and its story. I am, yes, very yeah. much so. It's a place where blacks and whites were um, invited to come together for interracial education back in the 1800s, uh, mid-1800s, had not been heard of. Very radical. In fact, the, the John Fee was, um, was run out of town at least three times because of what, putting this school together and this community where blacks and whites were invited to come and build their home to someone of a different race. It was a deliberate Steady, say a uh, place which said that all folks are equal and all are God's children and we want to live that out. They also invited men and women to be educated during that time period. It was quite radical. Um, yeah. It uh, ended in the, that, that process around 1904 with the passage of the Day Law 
which made it illegal for blacks and whites to be together in dorms. And of course, Berea was the only place in Kentucky where this was happening. The law was passed specifically. And then it took about 50 years for that to be changed or altered so that blacks could then start coming back to Berea. And nobody pays tuition. Nobody pays tuition there. Um, every They pay room and board up to what their family is eligible to give. But they have to be very bright and uh, be leaders and uh, movers and shakers in their communities to come. So it's a fabulous group of young people that come to this space. And they're all winners before they even walk in the doors there. Yeah, it's an amazing story that that, that Berea has. And, and e even the backstory that not a lot of people know about that are from that area but but it's an amazing place we've had dr william turner on our show before and several other professors from berea we always like to give a shout out to berea whenever whenever we can so we appreciate your time there and speaking of berea you focused your teachings on music theory on african-american music and world music while you were there you also directed the berea's black musical ensemble what led to this focus in your teachings and, and what are your musical inspiration? Well, my doctorate's in music theory. And so, and I grew up singing and being involved in music all my life. So it just seemed to like make sense to go into music, even though I was pre-med at first, but that didn't last long. <laughs> music wanted to be center full for me. Coming to a school uh, 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 and job, where I could teach and share what I love so much, it was like, you know, what a wonderful gift. So um, my focus when I was there was one primarily to teach and uh, nurture the choir. It was a student-run gospel choir, as and that was the case in most colleges around this period. This was '91 but um, around the country where there were gospel choirs in colleges, they were student-led, student-run. And I was in one. When I was in undergrad school, I was in a student-led gospel choir and I was the pianist. So uh, at Berea, what happened is that there was a problem because if there was not a student to play or to lead the group that year, then it didn't happen. And the next year it might. There was no consistency and continuity. So I was invited to first be the uh, person that advised them and then later I became the director. And we made it a class like other uh, music classes so students got the same recognition and uh, time for, for their time that they devoted to this singing uh, ensemble. So I'd say from 93 on, it is now one of the uh, several performing ensembles that students can join and get credit for. And it's perpetuating African-American music in the tradition and style in which it was learned and experienced. So I thought it was important. One of the reasons why I was in that space was to share and support that tradition, those voices, those for those students. Um, and it turned out to be not just black students, but for any students who felt led and called and wanted to be a part of this organization. And it was more than just a singing ensemble, as many choirs are, it was a community and became one that felt safe to many students to share and just simply to be. Um, so I was a part of that throughout. 
And then I taught music, it's a small college, so in addition to teaching, at some point, music history, class piano, some other things, I taught music theory, I taught um, African-American music, and what was developed those classes which were uh, needed at the college. That's the nice thing, if it's a small place and it needs to happen, then you do it. Uh, we spoke earlier, I recently was lucky enough to visit the John C. Campbell Folk School in Brasstown, North Carolina, where I know you recently was the first artist to teach Appalachian and African-American music connections. We really wanted to have you on the show today to talk about these connections or this connection. How deep are these connections and how do you present this in your workshop and your teaching? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I am so <laughs> excited uh, by this and it's an ongoing process. What happened was when I got to Berea, I would listen to the Bluegrass Ensemble and some of the other string bands and I would say, wait a minute, there are some things that feel familiar about this music to the music that I grew up with in the, the rhythms, the tapping of the foot, the dancing. I'm saying, wait a minute. Uh, there seem to be some connections I'm not hearing because I thought African-American was music was on one end of a long spectrum and, Af and Appalachian music was way at another end and they had nothing in common. But what I found, just as I found in my own life history, was that there were all these connections uh, that have continued from the very beginning because I found that the uh, what we call Appalachian music, mountain music, uh, culture in the mountain regions was very diverse. It was quite diverse. People from all over the world were there. Lots yeah, of black absolutely. folk, that, lots of Italians, Polish, Jewish, in addition to those from the British Isles. Uh, and they brought their cultures with them. And so there was this beautiful fusing together. And how does it happen to occur with Appalachian music? Well, what I talked about is looking at black people and African-American people and culture, how it evolved here and came to the United States. And then I talk about how black folk ended up in the Appalachian regions and brought their music with them. And some of the elements that continued uh, from their Af African heritage and how those can be seen and heard in Appalachian music and by Appalachian um, musicians. So they helped to define it. So when we talk about people um, coming from West Africa to, to the United States, they really, the term we use is forced migration now because uh, unlike earlier theories where it was said black people were white clean, they had no history, the more and more we realize absolutely there's so many connections to their West African heritage that continue to uh, play out here. Um, all African-American music books list about eight different um, musical elements and traits that can be traced straight back to their West African heritage. Things oh, wow. like prominent use of call and response, complex rhythms, and more. And so listing those, demonstrating how they happen in African American music, whether it was spirituals, the blues, or um, even uh, jazz or gospel, then looking at early U.S. and how these black people ended up in the Appalachian regions, whether it was working on the, the riverboats 
and going up into the areas of the mountains or whether it was traveling as enslaved folks with some of the folks who uh, were explorers coming from the east coast into those mountain regions the coal mines people coming up there's so many ways in which black people um, ended up in these mountain regions and with them brought their music so that some of the earliest what we think of as Appalachian or country music performers talk about the influence of black folks in their music. Bill Monroe, Leslie Riddle was with the Carter family and traveled with them and helped in collecting and transcribing music as folk music, but also teaching the Carter family, teaching them uh, musical ways of playing stylistically that became really prominent. Okay, so he was a very prominent part uh, and the music of that whole uh, story. You know, the one instrument that we think of being instrumental to Appalachian music, the banjo, really came from West Africa, uh, I've learned. Absolutely. You spoke of the influence. How important is it to celebrate those African-American influences on the Appalachian region, on the Appalachian music? I think it's critically important, Will, because what it says is that we're part of each other. And it's not about the other, you or I, but it's more of a we and how we move together. And it's harder to hate when you are connected. It's harder to see each other as adversaries when you're connected, um, when you realize that you share so many of the same things and ideas and values and it uplifts particularly african-american people who have systematically been downtrodden or removed from the story of african-american of america of the u.s um, so it's a matter of equity i think it's win-win when this happens there has been for hundreds of years uh, a policy of perpetuating the fact that African-Americans were less than, at times not even human, um, not having intellect, enjoying their captivity. This is during the time of enslavement or yeah. being dangerous. So you have to, but all of this had to do with um, the fact that slavery is really about labor which is unpaid for about two, 300 years. And what can you do? Well, I say you can build you a country with free labor for two hundreds of years with the hundreds of thousands of people working. And so to perpetuate that in the land of the free and the home of the brave, you need to put out there something that makes it okay to enslave people, not just for one generation, but make it for the rest of their existence and their families. And so that whole that whole concept, which is part that moves against the idea, the fact that when people get together, they share. When people yeah. get together, they give and they take. When musicians come together, I don't care where they're from, they're going to share, they're going to connect, they're going to make, you know, all kinds of fusions and things. That's what we do. You, you had so many great quotes there. We say all the time on here that we have so many more similarities than we have differences. Absolutely, Will, and that's why I'm so uh, excited to know about the work that you are doing and continuing it one show, one moment at a time, that message. 
I would um, also say what's happening is the natural way in which we as human beings connect is disrupted when you have perpetuation of this separation of folks that has also been going on in our country. And it plays out like this, for example. In Appalachia, there were people who went around collecting music and said, this is, we'll define this music as Appalachia. And so for their collection, they only went to people from the British Isles, from England and Scotland and Ireland and those areas and said, this is the real Appalachia, there's nothing else. And so that then defined Appalachia in a specific way. And if it didn't sound or look like those, then it wasn't. But that left out so many people who were also part of this Appalachian um, community. And that has perpetuated that myth, um, has become a reality in the books, in the libraries. And so what we're trying to do is take a part and let's look underneath the surface. Why did that happen? And who was left out in the stories, but not in the actual music making and not in the day-to-day -day lives they were and continue to be a part of it. So part of when I teach African-American music and look at those Appalachian African musical collections is just filling in the blanks, bringing back in what was already there. Such a good point of how even, you know, people from the region, no matter how diverse they are, who they are, we feel like we often get ignored, often yeah. get treated less than, which is exactly what you're describing as African-American culture as well. Absolutely, absolutely, that is the case. And misnamed and labeled in ways that are negative, absolutely. So the powers that be, it's, it's easier to keep these folks fighting on working against each other instead of looking at what we share. You know, we recently, or actually this week, we celebrated Juneteenth and it has become now a national holiday. How significant to our nation uh, from your perspective, making this a national holiday, and how should we recognize it in the Appalachian region and beyond? I read a quote, and I'm sorry to say I don't have the, the scholar's name in front of me. When he thinks of Juneteenth, he says three things it should be to celebrate, educate, and agitate. <laughs> <laughs> Those three things. I loved it because a lot of people, myself included, did not know a lot about Juneteenth growing up in uh, the Washington, D.C. area and the fact that there were whole spans of the country that took two and a half years longer than the rest of the country to know that, of, of African Americans, to know that they actually were free and that they would be, uh, no longer have to be enslaved, all of that. And Juneteenth recognizes it when it happened, particularly in Galveston, Texas, on that day, the General Granger came down and uh, with the troops, most of which were African-American troops that were part of the Civil War to come and share that knowledge and help to uh, physically make sure that these black folks understood their freedom. So I think it's important to know that part of our history to know that the emancipation, the more we know, I think the truth, the more it frees us to move forward, knowing what mistakes we might not make again, what lessons we learn from this, and how we have are enhanced by it, all of those things. 
But that can only happen authentically when it comes from a place of truth and knowledge. So one thing, the knowledge is critically important and having it in this national recognition invites us collectively as a country to look, what is Juneteenth? When did it happen? Why did it happen? What do we learn from this? And we're all better for that. That's since a celebration of the fact that even when this happened, when uh, General Granger came and these folks were uh, free, they still were afraid or it was dangerous for them to celebrate. They had to hide in celebration. Some of them were just even shot if they were going, going to just jump out. But that's not um, the first thing they celebrated. Continues of thousands would march with just the jubilation. The second, um, educating and learning about all of this and what it means for our country. And then agitate because Juneteenth and the emancipation earlier was not the final stamp. There are still so many inequities that continue today as we strive to be on equal footing, on equitable footing, one with the other. Um, in our communities, things that have been inherited for generations in terms of negativities that we need to um, fight against. So there's an ongoing journey for that equity, for that freedom, for African-American people, for people in poverty all over, for people who are struggling, for women um, and having the rights to their own health and all of those things. The struggle continues. My son is, I was praying that he would live past 18, not because he was, it has problems. He's a wonderful young man, opera singer now, is for doing what, but because he's an African-American man living in the United States. And almost all of the guys that I grew up with in DC are either dead or in jail. Not because they're all bad, but because of the unequal rules and ways that you have to live and the oppression that has happened. So we still have work to do. That's the agitation. Very well said. You know, you have such an incredible voice. You have such an amazing background in music. Do you, do you care if I ask you a couple of quick answer questions uh, based on your musical expertise? What is your favorite? Do you have a favorite song? It depends on what time of the day, which day you call it <laughs> um, Right now, my favorite today is uh, um, Never Gonna Break My Faith. Oh, oh, never Gonna Break My Faith. It was a song that I um, did for a Juneteenth uh, program, and it was written by Adams and Kennedy, but performed by Aretha Franklin, and won a Grammy for it. And it was the idea, I think, that you can you can lie to a child with a smiling face. Tell me that color ain't about right race. You can pass for stones, you can break my bones, but you're never gonna break. You're never gonna break my faith. So it was gave the feeling about what I was thinking today as we move forward in time. Um, and then, depending upon where we are later today, it might be <laughs> another song about um, I can see clearly now the rain oh. is gone. Love it. Bright. 
sunshiny day because I woke up today. I'm <laughs> just that much grateful, gratitude for getting to do it all over again. It's a new season. It's a new See now, will you open up something when you? No, I love it. I love it hearing that on Appalachian Meets World. That is amazing. If we could listen to just one of your songs, Miss Doctor Kathy Bullock's songs, do you recommend just one song that we should listen to? Well, I do have a CD that's on Bandcamp that has a lot of my favorite songs on it. One of them would be a city called Heaven. Um, which is a spiritual, and I dedicated to the memory of my dad and my granddad, who I didn't go, my great-grandmother. And if I get too upset about what's happening, I just think about her. And I have no problems, Will. <laughs> <laughs> I can, we can get her done. <laughs> yeah, get her done. I like it. Do you have a favorite artist? Uh, I love Patti LaBelle. I just think she's outrageously magnificent when I've seen her sing and the fire and music. They, um, another favorite would be my son. <laughs> As a, and what is her, his name? Can, can, uh, Bullock. He currently uh, sings opera, but he's learned all different kinds of music. My husband's another favorite. He and I grew uh, met in a gospel singing group and uh, have been together over 40, 42 years now. And so, and my son is uh, currently performing here in the States and Europe. And I think he's on his way to Brazil for a performance now. But oh, wow. uh, he would be one of my favorites, <laughs> along with that, my uh, family members who we grew up singing together. My sisters and I. That is a talented family. We're just really, really, we're really blessed. You know, performing in a gospel choir and you, you know, you sing gospel music. Do you have a favorite Bible verse or passage? Oh, I do. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up wings like eagle. They shall soar on wings like eagle. That's so, that is one of my favorite ones. But I always get the soaring and flying mixed because I just have this image of flying, you know? <laughs> oh, another favorite is Luther Vandross. Now, I got to add that, Will. Luther, oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you this. This is a question we, we sometimes ask people, but cornbread or biscuits? Cornbread. Oh, that was a quick answer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, I love biscuits too, but, you know. If you had the choice, cornbread, yeah. huh? Yeah. yeah. Nice. Although it's a close one. It's a close one. My, 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 my grandma made some, ooh, biscuits that were, ooh, yes. But I <laughs> I have a couple more questions. Uh, I, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. But two of our questions that we ask all our guests, the first one is, what's the first thing you think of when I say the word Appalachia? When I say Appalachia, I think of um, freedom, diversity, um, fighting against all odds. I'm from the ground for it, the, the soil, the ground, the earth, the love of land to first think of diversity and someone from the area having lived there for almost three decades now. I just love that answer. And thank you for that answer. Uh, another question that we ask everyone, we ground our podcast on place and perspective. As you well know, place is really important for Appalachia. It's kind of like a character in and to itself. So speaking of that, we wanted to ask you just where do you call home? What makes it home for you? What makes it unique? 
Washington, D.C. is what I call home, where I grew up, because of that's where my feet were placed, and uh, Northern Virginia, where uh, my grandparents, my mother's family lived. My granddaddy built the house the, there that my current sister lives in today, and um, we have property there. So both of those spaces, they're within an hour of each other. That's, that's what feels like home to me, even though now in D.C. most of my family has moved away from the area. Um, but, but, but as I think of walking in those areas and also, uh, South Carolina, where my daddy's people are from, when I drive from Kentucky to South Carolina and, and I get closer to where Holly Hillway lives, I start breathing differently. The air feels and smells different in a beautiful way. And I feel like welcome back. Yeah. That's that, those areas, uh, yeah, because yeah, of the memories. And because yeah. of uh, the people, generations before, who have grown up there, worked the land, and lived, and and uh, prospered there. Thank you so much. I, I really do feel honored for having you on the show. And for me, this has been an amazing conversation. I wanted to give you an opportunity, if you want to let our listeners know where you might be doing some future workshops, where they could potentially attend if you want to talk about where your son may be performing uh if you would like to let our listeners know feel free i do have a website kathybullock.com i uh will be at the augusta heritage uh center which is in uh, west virginia elkins west virginia for a week of their traditional music week that will be the uh, third week in july that i'll be one of the teachers there um, and I'll be at the John C. Campbell Folk School in uh, mid-August, uh, teaching my class on African and Ap Appalachian connections, uh, African-American and Appalachian musical connections. And we are gonna be singing songs written by uh, black folk from the region and writing songs and listening to all kinds of music. And it's just gonna be great fun uh, for that one. Um, I'll be taking a trip to Ghana, West Africa. I've been going off and on for years with students, this time with adult, or as I say, the grown folks. We're going <laughs> for uh, about 12 days of singing camp with a Brendan Taff and the Turtle Dove Harmony organization. Uh, and we'll be singing uh, songs. I'll be sharing gospel and others, but we'll be learning Ghanaian songs. Ghana will be taking classes in dance and drumming and working with schools and churches and giving a concert and that'll be fantastic. Um, and then I am not sure there's tentatively some touring. If you're uh, in Scotland, uh, I used to go back there every few years and because of COVID haven't been able to. So those are the upcoming things. My son, I can't keep track of him now. He just finished with the St. Louis Opera doing something. And before that, he was in L.A. He's in Brazil now. So I think Philip Bullock, you have to look him up to find out what's next. Thank you so much for all the work that you have done, all the work that you do to better educate us on those connections, on those cultural connections, on what you've spoken about today and those musical connections, you know, Appalachia, African-American music and beyond. So thank you for being a part of our show again. We were definitely honored to have you and we appreciate you and, and, and are blessed to hear your voice and have you on. Thank you.
thank you for the invitation. All the best to you and all of your listeners. sharing her incredible voice with our show. We really were honored to have her on, considering her rich wealth of knowledge and past teachings. And you can tell from the interview just how passionate she was, not only of music, not only of music theory, not only of world music, but of the Appalachian region as well. You could tell from her answers of how her perceptions changed of Appalachia as she lived here over time and taught at Berea and her love for Berea, her love for the region, really, I thought, shined through throughout the years. We want to thank her again for all the work. You can check out her website. We'll leave it in the show notes. But just to keep this brief, since we don't have Neil with us tonight, like again, he's with Mr. Chesney in the islands, so we can't be with us tonight. But I wanted to mention an at biz of the week. Talked a little bit during the interview about the John C. Campbell School. I wanted to mention it as the app biz of the week. It's in Brasstown, North Carolina, like I mentioned, but it's a folk school that offers year-round, week-long, and weekend classes for adults in craft, art, music, dance, and much more. It's where you immerse yourself in this school. You stay on campus. The cost includes all your meals, all your lodging. Historically, it is known as a folk high school, which had long been a force in the rural life of Denmark. So it has a Danish background where these schools, um, these folk schools transformed the Danish countryside into a vibrant, creative force. And that's what the Campbell C., the John C. Campbell Folk School is doing there in Brasstown, North Carolina. If you, ever get, if you get a chance, check out the website. We'll post it in the show notes, but it's folk school.org and it talks all about the school all the offerings they have the week long offerings the weekend offerings you can really immerse yourself in the creative arts and the folk ways my experience was was amazing i was i wasn't there very long but what i saw what i experienced was just really cool so i wanted to mention it as the app biz of the week so to keep this brief to keep this short give a shout out to neil and kenny I am the, the music that you heard throughout the episode are songs from Dr. Bullock's album. You can check that out as well. I guess we can end it like we usually do without Neil. Till next time. No hope have I for tomorrow. I.
started to make him my home. Sometimes I'm tossed and driven, Lord. Sometimes I don't know where to go. But I've heard of a city called heaven and I've started to make it my home. My mother has reached that pure glory my father still walking in the scene. My brother and sister don't own me because I am trying to get in. So I'm driven, Lord. Sometimes I don't know where to go. But I've heard of a city called Heaven, and I've started to make it my home I've started to make it my home I've started to make